you go to Hebrews chapter 10, we will be there first. And then after that, we will go to, or you need to turn there first. And then if you'll go to Romans 12, we're actually going to be there first. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 27. So those are the two passages. They should be on the screen behind you when we get there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one um, at the uh, at, at your row. Sorry, if you guys didn't get a bulletin and you want one, there's some back here. Um, we ran out. So um, I was getting that wave back there and I just totally lost it. Um, you were like, what's going on with him? It's going to be a fun day. Um, and can you hit the lights for me? Yes, thank you. Hey, there are people out there. From up here, you just like a big old black mass of nothingness. So now I see you. Um, okay, we are going to be in Romans 12. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to have one as a gift from us. And there's a uh, a table out near the coffee area called the Getting Connected area, and there are Bibles there that will be our gift to you. But I want to read Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and then we will look at God's Word together. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and then I'll pray. The Word of God says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is, or which is, your spiritual worship. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that right now, in this moment, you are here. You are here not just as a static force, but you are here by your Holy Spirit. Because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, you are here as a person dwelling in our hearts, seeking to know us in a relationship, calling for us to press into you And right now we pray that you would shake off the cobwebs of distraction, that you would remove the anxieties that would just flood our minds and keep us from focusing. God, I pray for anyone in this room that does not know Jesus, that God, you would grip them with your beauty and your truth, and your love, and you would overcome their resistance, and you would save them. Father, we ask that now you would give us humility to not just be hearers of the word, but doers. And we pray, God, that you would give us faith, and joy, and hope, and love in these moments. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay. I have one simple question. 
question is this, why are you here? Why'd you come? Surely it would have been a little easier to stay in bed, right? Or, you know, just eat lunch earlier. I mean, like, heck, you're probably not gonna eat lunch until like 1230 or something now. Why did you come? Why'd you show up? Some of you, because uh, my parents made me. Or others, it's just what you do. It's just what you do. I want us to know the answer to the question, why are we here? Why did we gather here this morning? Some of you, you've never thought about it. But I guarantee you, if there's unbelievers in this room, people that don't know Jesus, they've thought about it because they're asking, why in the world would I even come? Why in the world would I show up this morning and give my time to this kind of religious gathering? And friends, my prayer is that you will know the answer to that question before we're done today. Because the ultimate premise of today is that you are here because we are all worshipers, every one of us. We are all worshipers. Some of us are worshipers, and you might think, yeah, because I'm a religious person. Yes, I'm a worshiper. Or I've been a Christian, and so I, I'm, I'm, that's why I'm here. I'm a worshiper. And I want to argue that no, every single person on the planet is a worshiper. And what is bedded deep down within the DNA of our hearts is this desire to give glory or praise or adoration to something. We're all worshipers. And what's interesting is that not only has God pressed it upon the heart with this unavoidable sense of need, that we, we are crafted to give praise to something, but not only as individuals, he has crafted us to do it together. So the premise is that we are worshipers and that we must worship not only as individuals, but we must do it together. Now, we're in a series right now entitled Alive. Alive, what does it look like to walk in the fullness of the Spirit of God, to be alive? And we talked about that it is a beautiful and simple message that anyone, Anyone at all who declares their inability to remove sin, shame, and guilt, and their brokenness, and declares that Jesus Christ is the only one who can do that. He lived the perfect life. He died the death that you and I deserve because of our sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead victorious over sin, Satan, and death to say he's got power to save you and to change you and to get you to the end. If you say that I need Jesus and I can't do it myself, the Bible says you will be rescued from your sin. Just declaring your inability and his ability is the essence of this good news of the gospel. And the Bible says that when you declare that you need Jesus, God has been doing a work in the heart. 
You had a heart of stone that didn't want him. You were running away from God. You didn't understand him. And now God is doing this work in the heart so that your declaration, I love him, is an evidence that he has been at work right here. He's made your heart soft. And now as he comes and lives inside your heart, you have new affections. And in Romans chapter six, he says that you've died to sin and you're alive to God. That's just a state of being. You're no longer bent towards your own way. You are bent towards God. And when you lean towards your own way, the Holy Spirit pulls you back, convicts you, and tells you that there is a better way to live. He's reoriented your your soul and your life, and you've been made new. You're dead to sin and alive to God. But he promises in the Scripture that if you are dead to sin and alive to God, you must submit all that you are to him in order to experience the fullness of that alive life in the here and now. Because Jesus came so that you might have life and have it to the full. So we talked about that how can we not just walk in disciplines, but how can we, yes, be a disciplined people, but how can we pursue what he promises for us, a life alive to the Spirit of God? How can we pursue that? The first week was, we are a people of the word, for the word feeds us and gives us hope and joy and perspective and life. And we're a people of prayer, desperate, emotional before God, expectant, and yet patiently persistent for his presence to come. We're a people of prayer. And today we want to talk about another means of God making us alive is us gathering together to worship, corporate worship, gathering together to worship. The title of the message is The Grace of Gathering, but I want to give you the main idea. The main idea is this, corporate worship, that is what we do when we gather is necessary. It's not an add-on. It's necessary for living a life alive to God and is meant to fuel a life of worship in the everyday. So I'll say it again. Corporate worship, we gather together because it is necessary to live a life alive to God. And it fuels us, empowers us to not only worship when we gather together, but to be worshipers in the everyday. And so there's two main ideas. One, we are worshipers, and two, we are worshipers who must gather. It's not just an individual thing, it's a together thing. So let's look at number one, together. And we'll be in Romans chapter 12, verse one. We are worshipers. We are worshipers. It says in Romans chapter one, Chapter 12, verse one, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, what we need to understand is, it's one thing to say we're worshipers, but if you're honest, do we really even know what worship means? You think you might. What does worship mean? Well, we're gonna... Make sure we understand what worship means. And I want to lay out that it is, has both a broad and a narrow understanding. And it also has a true way to worship and a false way to worship. 
okay? So there's a narrow way to understand worship and a broad way to understand worship. And there's also a way to worship falsely and a way to worship in truth, okay? So let's make sure that we understand in light of this passage a little bit of both the narrow and the broad way when we're seeking to define what is worship. Well, it says here in the text, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Your bodies is all that you are as a living sacrifice. Now we gotta stop there. Because he is expecting, and all the readers would understand, that to relate to God, there was a sense in the Old Testament of a sacrificial system. Now, this is interesting because when you sacrifice something, it was alive and now it's what? Dead, right? He's saying that we, as we worship, we are to be a living sacrifice, a living dead thing. Okay, you got that? Does that hurt your head? It's a paradox. You're to be a living thing that's constantly being killed. Okay, thanks, Paul. Appreciate that. That's really helpful. Well, the way you understand it is, is you understand how it is like the Old Testament sacrifices, but also how it is unlike the Old Testament sacrifices. And Tim Keller was really helpful here in a sermon that I heard from him that laid out some of these parallels in Romans 12. So as we look at it, let's talk about how the sacrifices of the Old Testament are unlike the sacrifices that we are told to make here in this verse. We're to be living sacrifices, and it's different than Old Testament sacrifices in this way. Old Testament sacrifices were bloody, okay? They were bloody, and it was because without the forgiveness, without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sins. And so when they went to worship, the worship was located in isolation. It was go to the tabernacle, go to the temple, because that's where God's presence dwelled, and bring your sacrifice, which is a way to say, I am a sinner, and what I am doing to this animal should have been done to me. And so you lay it on the altar, and you slaughter it. And as gross as you might think that is, your sin is grosser. And as they slaughtered the animal, it was this sense, that should be me. And yet God chose to use that as a means of acceptance. But here's the gig. They had to do it over and over and over. They kept sinning. They had to keep sacrificing. Our sacrifice is different in that Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. He is the sacrificial lamb where all of our sins were placed upon him. And he was slaughtered by the will of God and as we look at Jesus, we are to say, that should have been us. And yet, in the love of God for us, he says, but it's not you. And I will crush my son and show you the extent of my love that anyone who would say, I need that death in my place, 
therefore declaring your inability, can be set free, washed clean, not having to offer sacrifices over and over because Jesus, the perfect God-man, is the once-for-all sacrifice. When we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, it is not a constantly bloody sacrifice, it's a constantly dependent sacrifice upon Jesus who paid it all. So that's how it's unlike it. And the other way is that that sacrifice, that sacrifice was isolated. It was isolated in a specific spot. You would erect an altar, you would slaughter it. When the temple and the tabernacle came, it was to be done there because the presence of God was done in isolation. However, Jesus tells us that he is the temple. And the fullness of God's presence dwells in anyone who trusts in him so that we are the temple of the living God because God dwells inside of us. And so when we worship him as a living sacrifice, we are not restricted to a place. This is not a sanctuary. This is a sanctuary. This is not a holy place. This is a holy place by faith alone. This carpet is no more holy than the carpet in your house or the carpet at the IMAX theater where we worship for a while. Things don't get ascribed holiness. Holiness is, is God dwelling within his people. And so our living sacrifice is not a constant sacrifice over and over. We're not bloodying ourselves. Jesus bloodied himself that we might get his full love all at once. Not an over and over, not a repeat. And it's not limited. It's not limited in space. It is something that we give our lives to. Now, the narrow sense in the Old Testament is that it was, it's something that you would do in a moment, go to a place and you would worship. And that's okay to say, I am coming to 554 East Target Street to worship is an okay use of that, but it's a narrowed use. Another narrowed use of what worship means is like what Job did. Job, he lost everything. His family was taken away from him. His possessions were taken away from him. His wife cursed him. And it says that he said with his own mouth, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And the Bible said two things about those words. One is that with his lips he did not sin or accuse God of wrong. And two, that that was him worshiping. He bowed down and worshiped. One narrow sense of worship is the proclamation with your mouth that God is good and sufficient and deserves all praise even in the midst of some of the darkest tragedies or the highest joys. Worship as the declaration with the mouth of praise and adoration is another way you could understand worship, but it's a narrowed sense. Are you following that? So the two narrowed ways are that it's you're coming to a place to worship or that worship is simply the declaration with your mouth. 
But there's a broader understanding. Both those are right, but there's a broader understanding of worship that Paul wants to get at here. And it's, it's how our sacrifices are like the sacrifice of the Old Testament. This sacrifice is when they laid that sacrifice on the altar, there was this sense of repentance. And it was saying that I don't have rights over my life, you do. It is the declaration that my life does not belong to myself anymore. My life is yours. I don't get to choose what I want. I want you to choose for me. So when they took that animal and they laid it down, they were declaring that God is theirs. And in the same way, when we give and present our whole lives, our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, we are saying, just like they did, that we no longer have rights over our lives. God is who our primary aim is for. We live to please him and to serve him. Everything is for his glory and his joy. We are about praising him. And therefore, we are living sacrifices. And so the question that I ask in these moments is, is there any portion If that's what it means to give ourselves as a living sacrifice, God, everything of mine is yours. Is there any portion that, if we're honest before the Lord, we've declared is off limits? I remember when I was 17 years old, I went to a youth camp. Youth camps are pretty cool because when you go to the youth camp, there's these speakers and you just you get more Bible than you normally get as a teenager. And so every single night you've done some Bible study and every single night somebody's speaking and it was just, it was, those times were great and they were refreshing and they really helped me understand what life was about. And, but at this camp, it was a little different than the ones I'd been to previously. I was cresting into my senior year and the Lord was just really pressing in on my heart. I had been a follower of Jesus for a while, but what he was pushing in on me was, I want all of you. I want all of you. I want you to give your life wholly to me. And of course, I thought I had done that. And, you know, I was living for him. I was fairly the moral kid at school, you know, and people would come to me if they had problems or, you know, that I had some sense of morality about me, and I would read my Bible, and you know I, there was some genuine faith there, but it was it was it was conditional, and that was evidenced when, at 17 years old, I really felt the pressing of God upon my life to say that I needed to just say, "Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do." First night, I really felt that pressing. I said, "No, no dice." Moved on, went to bed, had fun, played games. Next night, felt the pressing of God upon my life. Same thing, didn't listen. Third night, same thing, didn't listen. Hardhead. Last night, it was just overwhelming. The presence of God in my heart, what was being spoken, and I didn't know exactly how to respond, but I just walked forward just so that I could pray. And there were tears flowing down my face because the getting up in the midst of my peers was this sense of embarrassment or this sense of 
I didn't have it all together. I wasn't the most spiritually pristine. And I walked forward and I bowed down and I was just weeping. And a guy comes up and lays his hands on my shoulder and he just asked, what do you think God is doing in your life? And as I began to articulate it, I realized that God was pulling me strongly into vocational ministry, into something like what I'm doing right now, serving the church, but I didn't know exactly what. So here's what I said. I said, God, I'll do whatever you want, but I'll never be a preacher and I'll never be a missionary. (laughs) Won't do it. I'll give you everything, but I'll obey you if I don't preach and I don't go anywhere other than right here where I am. So what do we do with that? God wants all of us. And I remember it wasn't until college, probably three years later, when I'm at my bed kneeling down over the scriptures and God brings that conditional statement to my mind. And he says, I want all of you. I want all of you. I want you to say whatever to my call. I want your yes to be on the table. I want you to do whatever. And God, that summer, he took me as a summer missionary to Oklahoma where I preached seven times. I was terrified to public speak, terrified. I remember my freshman speaking class. It kept me up all night to deliver my first speech. And it wasn't all night in preparation. It was all night in just terror. And it was a horrible speech. But God doesn't want, I'll obey if, he wants, I'll obey. And he's not asking for, I'll give you everything, but he's asking for us to be a spiritual sacrifice that says, I give you everything. And that's going to be a journey. Because there'll be moments when you feel like you've given him everything and then he begins to kind of press in on the heart and you realize, oh, I thought I gave that. But I'm still gripping onto it really tightly. And there'll also be moments where you genuinely gave it away and said, it's all yours, Lord. And then out of fear or out of just kind of spiritual relaxedness, you pick it back up and you place the burden on your back that wasn't meant to be your burden to carry. And you realize you need to give it away again. But Paul is saying, I appeal to you. God is going to give you all the mercy you need for this. But you need to understand the broader sense of worship. That worship is giving your all to God over and over and over and over again. This is your spiritual act of worship. It is the desire to be holy and the desire to be pleasing. It is the holy and acceptable or holy and pleasing to God. God, I want to be holy before you and I want to be pleasing to you. And this is what it means to be a worshiper. To be a worshiper is to say I'll give whatever. There's not only a broad and a narrow sense of worship, but there's a true and a false sense of worship that imports into Romans chapter 12 because he's already mentioned what worship is previously in the book. In Romans chapter 1, 
he begins to lay out that there's not only a broad and a narrow sense of what worship is, there's a true and a false sense of what worship is. Remember, this is all under the premise of we're worshipers. But what does that mean? What does that mean? It's like we're laborers and you need to tell, what is that? Why, what is this important? Why does this matter? And so we gotta understand what worship is before we understand the significance of that that's who we are. And there's a true and a false sense to worship in Romans chapter one, verse 25 tells us this. I'll, I'll read the lead in verse, verse 24. It says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because, and here's the verse, verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. This is where I get the idea of true and false. They latched onto a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. The essence of sin is a worship disorder. It's a worship disorder. It is when we exchange the truth about who God is for a lie that we're telling ourselves or the world is telling us or the devil is pushing in or not on and around us, and we grip onto that lie, and we begin to believe that the creation can satisfy us over the creator. And so we latch on to him, to the creation, and we say no to the creator, that's sin. To rise anything up to the level of ultimate provider, ultimate satisfier, is a worship disorder, and it destroys the human soul. It is sin. And there, it begins to show us that worship is not just something that happens at a temple or something that happens in a church. Worship is what you are doing all the time. You are either giving yourself to what is true and you are declaring constantly with your body as a living sacrifice that Jesus is enough or you are declaring something else with your life. Believing a lie of the devil that anything else can satisfy. This relationship will, the money will. It's disordered loves. It's when you make things more important than people, Augustine says, or you make people more important than God. It's a worship disorder. And so there's a false way to worship. And the false way is to give ultimate hope and credibility to anything other than God. Timothy, Paul speaks to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 and he says, do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hope upon the certainty of God. There's a way to set your hope, your affection, your belief on something other than God, believing that it will deliver. And this is something that we've got to make sure we understand. We talk this way all the time, but we don't give it worship categories. We say that person is obsessed, or that person is stressed, or that person is a workaholic. Or that person is an alcoholic. Or that person is fraught with anxiety all the time. 
and we'll give it all of these other labels, which are fine. Labels are fine. As long as we understand that what's underneath it all is this very thing. That the major problem is not outside of you, but inside. That doesn't mean that there aren't horrible things outside of you that do affect you. But Jesus died not so that your circumstances would be perfect, but that he would change your heart. And so all of these are just evidences that we have worship disorders. So when someone is a workaholic, they might be working 60, 75 hours in order to prove identity. Or because their bill seems so far behind that they believe they've got to do this to provide. Well, I'm all for Something my daughter says regularly in my house, it's just kind of funny. You don't work, you don't eat. That's what the Bible says. But when my seven-year-old says it, it makes me laugh out loud. (laughs) You don't work, you don't eat. Okay, that's right. We got to work. We can't be lazy. I get that. And that's right. But who do you believe is your ultimate provider? And are you sacrificing what God has made clear are your first priorities for secondary priorities. Time with the Lord, being with God's people because you feel like that you need that promotion. Please work hard, fight for promotions. I pray that God blesses us with senses of of wealth so that we might give it away and we might be generous. That's wonderful. But friends, we're all worshipers. And before we, are too care- before we are too blinded by all the many labels that we could be giving it, let's make sure that we understand what's at the root. It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And it's worshiping the creation over the creator. I can control it. I can do it by my own actions. That'll make you really anxious. I've got to have it a certain way. We call it obsession. It's a worship disorder. We must fight to be a true worshiper. And so here's a definition of what worship is. It's a longer definition, and then I'm just going to give you a simple one. But the longer one is helpful. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind with the truth of God to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Just process it with me. It's to say, oh God, I want the the definition of my right and wrong to be defined by your holiness. I want your truth to flood through my mind so that I don't make up my own truth. God, I want everything that is creative about me to be funneled through the beauty of who you are. I need to see you. I want to see you. And I want my heart to be opened up so that you would fill me up with your love. And I want everything about my will to be directly in line with yours. I want my life to be a spiritual sacrifice. I want everything to be yours. 
But if you're like me, I have trouble memorizing that big old long definition, especially when I'm tempted with my worship disorders, right? What I want to go after. So what in the world am I going to do to redirect my heart when I've got some worship disorders going on deep down? I'm going to take this simple definition of worship. Worship is finding ultimate satisfaction in God. Ultimate satisfaction in God. The reason I put the word ultimate in there is because I want you to find satisfaction and joy in thousands of things. Your marriage, your children, your work, your play, football games, unless your team lost like mine did, which I'm still sad about. But that's a different story. I want you to find your joy in creation, in playing and laughing. I just want you to be a happy people, but you will not be able to fully be satisfied unless God is your ultimate satisfaction. Worship is, God, you are ultimate. I need you more than I need anything else. My life will not be fixed if I get the perfect spouse and the perfect home and the perfect children and the perfect job. What fixes my life is you. You've got to be central. And that wasn't made any more clear than it was yesterday when we were driving down I-40. Driving down I-40 yesterday with my family on like a 35-minute jaunt. And as we were driving, it was pouring the rain. So there's rain everywhere, and which means driving is a little bit more uh, hairy, a little bit more treacherous. And so not the car in front of me, but the car in front of them slammed on their brakes. And the only way I knew it was he pulled over into the grass. So this truck in front of me slammed on its brakes, but I also saw that in my rear view mirror, there was this massive truck that was not far from my bumper. So I'm slamming on my brakes, pulling over, and all I could get out was, hold on, kids. And so I'm pulling over like this, and yet I'm trying to put on the brakes so I don't hit guy in front, but also let off of the brakes so that the guy coming behind me doesn't ram into my rear end. And then this guy, he just pulls over in the other lane because he would have tagged me. And thankfully, there was nobody in his blind spot, and he just zips on. But then we were all able to kind of get back, and my kids were like, okay, I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> and when we were in there, all I could get out was, hold on, kids, and here's what I hear from my bride. Lord, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And we just began to have a discussion about how simple life gets when you're in situations like this. Just everything else that's peripheral just goes, it's on the edges. What matters is right here, life and death. Who's securing you? What's life about? Everything is really simple. And right now, from God's word, he wants it to be really simple for us. That worship is saying, in that moment of crisis, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus. For you alone can satisfy. You alone are my treasure. You alone are my aim. 
Without you, I have nothing. And with you, I have everything. He is enough. And that declaration, that giving of your whole self, that he might be your full satisfaction, your ultimate satisfaction, that's worship. God, you are my ultimate satisfaction. That's worship. And what I'm afraid of is what Leonard Ravenhill warns of in his book, Why Revival Tarries. And he uses the illustration of science and says, just as a scientist, a modern scientist has lost God amidst the wonders of his world, we Christians are in real danger of losing God amidst the wonders of his word. Just as a scientist is so enamored with science that he can begin to lean on his own reason and not see a creator and begin to be blinded to all the wonders that are around him that scream that there's a God. We too can begin to be so enamored with right thinking that we miss that this is a relationship with a person. That he is calling us into interaction with him, the living God. And that God has made himself known in the person of Jesus and invites us to listen to him, to call out to him, to talk to him, like you would a person, because he's a person. And oh, that we too would not lose what many scientists lose. Many times they will just look out and what begins to be mundane is all of this vast galaxies. We too can say, it just gets mundane to talk about the glories of God. And then worship begins to be an event we come to rather than a relationship we pursue. And this begins to be routine. And we begin to ask the wrong questions. Oh, how did the preacher do? Or how was the music? Was it pleasing to me? Rather than was it pleasing to God? Rather than was God teaching me something? And is there something that I should take away? We begin to evaluate performance. And if we just like certain components, rather than realize we are here to meet with the living God. And so, friends, we are worshipers meant to sacrifice all that we are for our great God. But we as worshipers are not meant to stay in isolation. We are meant to worship together. And that's where we get Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10 we see that worshiping together is not just icing on the cake. It is essential for Christian growth. It is essential for Christian living. And so, let's look at the second point. We are worshipers, yes, that's point one, but we are worshipers who must gather. 
point two. And I want you to look at it there. I'll start with verse 23, but we'll be honing in on 24 through 27. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So God's changed you. You have declared, God, you are my hope. And that hope will not put you to shame because God is faithful. He will deliver on what he says he's going to do. So hold fast to it, though, because everything around you is going to want to pull that hope away. Want to convince you that God's not good, that he's not wise, that he's not loving, that he's not there for you, and you've got to fend for yourself. Hold fast to your confession because God is faithful. Well, where are we going to learn that? Well, let's keep reading. And, verse 24, these two go together. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And here's the phrase not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't let go of your hope and stir up one another, encourage one another. And how's that gonna happen? Well, you better meet together, he says. Why? Verse 26, because, why should we meet together to stir up one another and to hold fast to our confession? Because if we go on sinning deliberately, that is unrepentance, not turning from sin. That doesn't mean you don't keep sinning. Of course, we are sinners saved by God's amazing grace and we are not called here to be perfect But there's a difference. When you sin, you fight to repent, to turn back to God. This is the picture of someone who is not turning back to God, sinning deliberately. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after having received the knowledge of God's truth, after hearing his word, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins because the sacrifice is applied to those who trust in Jesus. You are saying, I don't want the sacrifice. That's what he means. There's not a sacrifice for you because you're refusing the only way that the sacrifice applies to you by continuing to sin. All you got to do is repent and believe. And so if you continue to sin deliberately and rejecting the sacrifice that was made for your sins, the only expectation you have is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, that is, the adversaries of God. Put it all together. Hold fast, stir up one another by meeting together. Because if you don't meet together, you will be withholding the grace that God intends to give you through the meeting together. And you will be more inclined towards sin and less towards God. What we are talking about when we gather is not just some religious function that we do here. Eternity is happening and God is doing thousands of things right now. Right now. Thousands of things that you are meant to be encouraged by in this very moment. And you are meant to be an encourager 
We are supposed to, through the songs and through the preaching and through the praying and through the interaction with one another, we are not only to be pointing one another to the beauties of Jesus, but also to be pulling one another away from the perils of sin. That's what we're doing when we gather. We're reminding one another of truth. We're calling one another to worship in truth and in spirit, that the spirit of God would rain down on us and that we would say no to sin and that God would press in on the heart. Some of you, in this moment, your heart has been stirred. And there's been an area where you know that you have been saying everything God is yours but. And God in his kindness has been pressing in upon your heart and saying, give it to me. Some of you in this room, you have been brought to your mind has been a sin that has been standing between a full and free relationship with you and God. And it's being brought to your mind even as I'm talking and as the word of God is going forth, his spirit is at work and he's pressing you to confess that to him. Others of you, you've come in here really weak And in this moment, you are feeling this unique sense of God's love for you and a sense of comfort. Others of you, you came in flatlined. No spiritual kind of tick on the meter at all. And there's a rumbling in the heart of desire that God is doing in your life as his word goes forth thousands of things that are happening in this very moment because God is with us. This is not something that we just come and we just say, yeah, that's what we're supposed to do religiously. This is an opportunity to meet with the living God and to watch him work in us as a body. We expect him to move for our good, and we expect him to use us for his glory, and both should be expectations when we gather together. And the author of Hebrews says, it is going to be the habit of some to not want to gather together, and every one of us in here have felt that, right? I don't want to come this morning. I'm sleepy. Job has been really hard. I'm overwhelmed. It's the device of the devil to get you into a regular routine of dependence upon yourself and a regular acknowledgement that you feel like you can do it on your own. And the Bible says, no. The means of grace that I give you, one of them is that you would gather together and the gathering together, hearing one another sing, hearing true things about God through one another, that helps you hold on to your hope. That helps you stay strong and be stirred up to love and good deeds, without which you would be more bent towards sin. It is inevitable that when someone regularly misses corporate worship, Something else crazy has been going on in the heart. And it's a cycle. We miss it because something's going crazy on in the heart and something continues to go crazy on the heart because we miss it. 
This moves it completely away from some box you check off in order that you might please or be acceptable to God. This is the need of the human soul to not only be an individual worshiper who is all in for God, but doing it together, we must do not neglect as is the habit of some. And I hope you see how he connects that to keeping us from sinning deliberately. The gathering together is that God would do thousands and thousands of things in our own life. And friends, I've seen it. I've seen it in our body. You don't get to hear all the stories, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is doing so many things in this moment right now. Testimonies that I've heard. The weary are sustained. The downhearted are comforted. The weak are upheld. All of us are spared eternal judgment, at least for this moment. Do you realize the fact that you are here is a declaration that God is saying, I am patient with you. Just the fact that you're here and not crushed, let alone the fact that some of you in this room have declared Jesus as your treasure and he promises that he's gonna make you his, you are his, and that he will get you to the end. That's a gift. Hearts of stone are being changed into hearts of flesh. Desires are being ignited. Desires are being changed and reoriented. Encouragement is coming from the scripture. Hope in Jesus is happening. Peace is being reassured. Your mind are being drawn to the things of God, which it was not prior to. Our sights are directed and redirected to heaven. Praises are declared among hundreds of people together so that we get a small taste of what it'll be on that last day when we're declaring truths about God for eternity. Marriages are being healed. Insight for parenting is given. Strategies for fighting sin. Wisdom is given so that you might make wiser decisions. Our minds are directed to what really matters. People are kept from gross immorality. Courage is given to live boldly. Truth is given so that you might have something to give away. Thousands of things are happening right now. He's at work and he's moving. And we have become so inoculated with religion, we walk into this room just thinking that we're sitting to be entertained. I'm not a TED Talk. I'm not some inspirational speaker. I'm trying to connect you to the living God. I'm trying to show you that Jesus matters and he is enough and he's everything. And that this word is life. And that these people around you are in the same battle you're in. So stop trying to fight it on your own and let's do it together. We are a people, a people meant to be together in worship, together. And he is with us and you better believe it. He promises in Isaiah 57, 15 that he dwells with the lowly and contrite. Those of you who've been brought low in these few minutes we've been together, he's with you. He promises in Isaiah 66, 1, that he is with the one who is contrite and trembles at his word. Some of you, the word has struck your heart and you're trembling at it. He's with you. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 18, where two or more are gathered in his name for his glory, there he will be also. He's with us. And that's even in the context of church discipline. When the church is fighting to be holy, he promises, I am with you in your fight to be holy. And then in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given unto me. Now you go and make followers of Jesus. You baptize them and you teach them everything that I'm commanding to you. 
What are we doing? We're making disciples right now in this moment. We're being made into disciples and God wants to use you to make disciples. And what does he say? And lo, I am with you sometimes. No, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's here. We need eyes to see. Ezekiel's servant, when he couldn't see the army on the hill that was gonna lead, Ezekiel looked at his servant and he said, you just need spiritual eyes to see. And his eyes were opened up and he saw thousands and thousands of angels that were gonna fight the battle and win the battle for him. We need those kind of eyes. That the Holy Spirit of God is at work in this moment. And he's at work that you might look more like him. And that you might give him away to others in this room. There are are tons of passages in the Bible on corporate worship, tons. And every one of them, when you come to them, every one of them have one thing as their focus and one thing not as their focus. The one thing that is their focus is trying to connect a people to God. And the one thing that is not the focus is form. John Piper says that the Bible is a missionary handbook and therefore therefore predominantly silent when it comes to the issue of form. What does that mean? It means it doesn't matter whether I preach right when we start and we do the welcome at the end, And it doesn't matter whether I preach at the end and we do the welcome at the beginning. It doesn't matter whether we do one type of music or whether we do another type of music. It doesn't matter about form. What matters is who we're going after together as a people. And regularly, when you read in the New Testament about all the times that the people gather, here's what you hear them doing. There's the preached word. There's the pastors that are helping to guard against poison doctrine and to give healthy doctrine. There's prayer. There's singing. And those songs are meant to communicate truths that are memorable to the mind so that we're continuing to rehearse truths all throughout our lives. There's regular encouragement and the sharing of gifts. And there's the Lord's Supper that happens when we gather. Over and over, you hear these themes coming out All of them means that we might be connected to God. I remember growing up hearing these kind of atrocious statements. One of them is, you don't come to church to get, you come to give. Now, go at it. That's why you come to church. You come to serve. You don't come to get something. You you come to give it out. That's garbage. It's garbage. Because it's a both and, not an either or. The Bible says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. If we're coming to get God, you better come expecting to get. You better come really desperate and really needy and expecting him to pour into you what you are lacking. That's why we come We come because we are needy and he is sufficient to meet those needs. We come to be filled up. We come all tired and worn out from the week and we expect him to make us alive again in him. 
But then also, we not only expect him to move for our good, but we expect him to use us for his glory. That as he fills us up, we pour out. We pray over one another. We ask people how they're doing and we listen. We love one another. We're sensitive to the Spirit's prodding when he says, why don't you go and encourage that person by praying for them or sharing a scripture with them? The times of gathering are for us to not only be filled up, but to also give away. And you need to know if God is in you, he has something for you to give away. And so in these times, if God has given you a word this week, he strengthened you with a word this week, know that that's not only for you. It's for you, but it's for you to give away and to come expecting that God has that word for somebody in this gathering. It would change everything that we do. People would be asking God to press in upon their hearts for them to share something, not just receive something. People would be desperate. They'd be going to one another in prayer. They'd be asking for someone to pray over them for healing in their marriage or even physical healing. There would be conversations about going to God together. And we not only do that in community group, we can do that here. So friends, we are worshipers. We are worshipers meant to give our lives as a living sacrifice to a holy God, but we are worshipers that must gather together because in gathering together, we see Christ clearer and in ways that we would not see him were we to stay alone. And so let's expect together for God to move and let's expect together for God to use us for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I ask, I ask that in these moments that you would move, that as we sing, there would be a rising up in the heart of that is true, that is true. Or where we struggle to believe it, there would be a rising in the heart of prayer and we would say, oh God, make it true, make it true. I pray that our times together would be filled with both confession and praise that we would be able to be like Job and that we would understand that narrow sense of worship, which is to give you praise with our mouths. That's why we sing. That's why we come together. And God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, in this moment right now, that you would have your way with us and that we would not say, I'll obey if, but just I'll obey and that we would say, God, I want to give everything to you, not everything but. And Father, where we've picked something back up, I ask, oh God, that you'd make us aware so that we would give it to you for our own joy and the joy of those around us, that we would live a full life in you and we would not resign ourselves to living defeated, anxious lives. And so, Father, we pray that in this Lord's Supper time, you would do a changing work in our hearts. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.